It is so good to have you here and to be here with you tonight. Beverly and I were excited to be here. We kind of came a roundabout way to do this. Uh, my, my former secretary uh, at Dothan, Alabama passed away and they asked me to do that funeral yesterday. So I went down and did that funeral and then spent the night there and we came up today. But it is good to be with you. I want to tell my secretary, she was a wonderful friend. She didn't always get things right. And, and I had to tell part of the story on some of her secretarial skills while I was there. But there was one day she walked into my office. In fact, she didn't walk in. She kind of ran into my office breathless. And she said, LeVon Anderson is on his way to the building. And his, his father just died. And, uh, and the family wants you to break the news to him. And then they'll come on down and be with him. And I said, well, what was his father's name? I said, I don't know. I said, uh, well, how did he die? I don't know. And, she, and I said, so it's just his father passed away, and I'll just pass that word on, and the family will come with more. She said, yes, that'll be the way it is. So Levine Anderson shows up at the building. I bring him into my office. We're chit-chatting for a few moments. I'm trying to figure out how to break this news. And finally, I said, Levine, I don't know how to tell you this except just to let you know. Uh, I don't know how to break it to you, but uh, your father just passed away. He said, my dad's been dead 20 years. I went, I said, well, it must be your mother then. I didn't know what to say. I had no idea what to say uh, with that. But it was one of those moments, uh, you know. But I think back on good memories that I've had. And, and I want to tell you that all the members of the body of Christ are family. And, and we do strange things sometimes. But it's always wonderful to be a part of the family. Uh, and I know that by the time that this weekend is over, you and I will understand a little bit more about what kind of family we are. And I think it's going to be something that we'll all really enjoy. I want to take you to a passage that's been assigned to me tonight. It's Ephesians chapter 1. Do you have a Bible? By the way, if you have one, hold it up, okay? Now, some of you are holding up cell phones. Okay, I get that. Uh, just don't be playing something like Candy Crush. But uh, uh, cell phones, it's interesting. We had, uh, I had a young man and some years ago when he was newly married. He was in one of my young married classes. And I asked him if he would read a passage of Scripture for me, and he got his phone out, and he said, I'm sorry, Brother Watkins, but my Bible just died. And I thought, wow, I've never heard that expression before. But, so make sure your battery's good, but it's going to be great. We'll start with verse th six, uh, 3 and go down through verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 1. And while we're doing that, let me just say that Paul was a grammarian's nightmare. He started in verse 3 and didn't finish the sentence until verse 12. He's just, and it's not because he's not logical, and it's not because he's trying to use bad grammar. It's because the thoughts are just coming so rapidly that he can't stop this sentence, and it just keeps going on and on and on. He said, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And that's not the end of the sentence, but that's the passage that was associated with this topic of opening our eyes. This is 2020. We need clear vision. This is 2020. I need my eyes open to know who I am and what my heritage is and where I am in that heritage and how much God put into that to make possible what you and I are able to do right here tonight. And I want, you to, tell, I want to tell you that Ephesians is this amazing book. It's an amazing book. 
If you want to know the story of God, you don't start in Genesis. If you want to know where the story begins, it doesn't start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It starts with Ephesians. Because Ephesians, above all other books in the New Testament or the Old, takes you back prior to the creation, all the way back to the eternal purposes of God. And when I get in Ephesians, I feel like I ought to take my shoes off because here I'm standing on holy ground. I'm reaching back, seeking to understand the mind of the God who's so far beyond me that there's no way on earth I'm ever going to be able to fully grasp who he is. And by the way, if you ever do, if you ever figure out everything about God, I want to tell you the one you figured out isn't God because he's too big. He's too much. But he gave us this glimpse. He pulled back the curtain of time to eternity past. And he tells us something here. When he starts this, though, he starts out this remarkable statement. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. If you're a child of God, you are already blessed with every spiritual blessing. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There are people I know who are Christians who say, you know what, I really need, I need more patience. You really don't. You have all you need. Somebody says, but I need a little more love. I need to be more loving. No, you really don't. You have all you need. You have all the patience, all the love, all the joy that you need, but you have to claim it. You have to claim it. They've already been, it's already been given to you. He's been giving us this as he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now he goes on in the beginning of the very next verse to begin to enumerate a number of those blessings that have come to us. We're going to look at a few of them, and, and this is basically introduction. I'm just telling you to the main thing that I want to talk to you about tonight, but these are important. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Somebody says, there it is. I won't get all those blessings till I get to heaven. Only in Ephesians do you find this passage or this idea of the heavenly places. And by the way, it, it's not that in the Greek. It's the heavenlies. And it's not talking about heaven. When the Bible talks about, in Ephesians, the heavenly places, it's talking about places where heaven's influence is strong here on earth. And so the spiritual hosts of wickedness are in the heavenly places, he says, in Ephesians chapter 6. What does that mean? The Satan's at work here tonight to try to distract you. Wherever God's people meet, he will be doing everything he can to say, man, did we turn off the stove before we left? Did we do this? Did we? You know that's Satan working on you? He's doing everything he can all the time to take your focus away from him. But we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing where heaven's influence is so strong. Right here in this building, in this moment, among God's people, this is the heavenly place. These are the heavenly places. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And listen to what he says they are. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God made a decision. I'm going to talk more about that decision in just a moment, and so I want to hold that just a little bit. But he made a decision before he ever said, let there be light. He made a decision before he ever breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. He made a decision that he would have children. He made a decision that he would have a special people. A person is holy not just because they are righteous. Holiness and righteousness are not the same thing. Holy at its, at its root means different. The temple was 
holy because it was different and had a different purpose than every other building on earth. That, that Jesus Christ is holy because there's never been anybody like him ever. God is holy because he is different from us. That anything that was set apart as different, that thing itself was basically at its root holy. God says, among everything that I'm going to create, I'm going to make something special. And I've already decided to do it. Before he ever made Adam, before he ever made Eve, he already knew what he was going to do. He says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world for two purposes, that we should be holy, that's number one, different from the rest of the world. You can't be just like the rest of the world. You can't just fit in. I'm just telling you, you can't just fit in and be God's people because he made you different. Second thing is that he made us to be without blame. And if you look, actually, a better translation of that is, and it, you'll find it in several, without blemish before him. If you were offering up a lamb, it had to be a lamb without spot or blemish. He says, I want a people, I want a people on earth. I've already decided that I'm going to do it. And I want them to be different from everything and everybody else. And I want them to be without blemish. And I'm going to make it possible for them to do it. He made that decision before he ever created the world. Well, look a little further, and I want, you to, I want you to see something here that's really important. He says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Adoption in the days of Paul was sometimes like our adoptions, but mostly it was not. You could adopt somebody who grew up in another family and put them in your family, and that would be fine, but that's not really what he's talking about here. When you grew up in a Greek family or a Roman family, when you were born into that family, the father had the right of refusal. I have a letter in my office that was written by a man named Hilarion to his wife. He was gone on an extended business trip, and... His wife was going to have a child while he was gone. And in the letter, it's a really nice letter. He says a lot of nice things to her and how much he misses her. And then he says, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, throw it out. I want to tell you that when you were born in Rome or in Greece, that you were a possession of your father, and that baby, if the father was there, would be laid at the feet of the father. And if the father wanted it, then he would pick it up. If he didn't want it, you would either kill that child or you would take it out to the fountains of Rome and you would lay it at the fountains where it would either die of exposure or it would be picked up by the slave traders who would raise that child as a slave. And there was no legal action that would be taken against the father. If the father chose to kill that child, he had every right legally to do it. If you were born into that family, and you had not yet been adopted into that family. If your father died, you inherited nothing. But there would come a time in a child's life where they would be formally adopted. For the Romans, it was the celebration of the toga, where they would be given the toga of an adult. And when you went through that process, and it was a legal process as well as a familial process, but when you went through that process, then if your father killed you, he would be a murderer. Then, if your father died, you would inherit all that was coming to you. That was adoption. That was adoption. What does it mean, then, that you and I have been adopted? Somebody said, I thought I was born into the family. You were. But at the moment you were born, you didn't have to wait. 
At the moment that you were born into the family, you were also adopted into the family, and all the rights and privileges that God has for His special people are yours. Every bit of that has come to you. He has predestined us. He decided before the world began that He would have a people who would have all the rights and privileges of being a part of His family. He would be a father, and they would be fully inheriting sons and daughters. And He decided that long, long ago, before the world ever began. According to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now listen to this last thing it says in verse 6. By which He made us accepted in the Beloved. You know what that means? God looks at you and He says, You're mine. And I love you. You're mine. You're a part of my family. And I believe you're worth the death of my son. The price I paid was not too great for you. I accept you. You know, one of the things that I see people struggling with, I, I see Christians struggling with this, these, these guilt issues. Really, a lot of guilt issues. And I understand, if, you've, if you have rebelliously violated the will of God, and you've decided that that's the way you're going to live, I hope you feel a little guilty about it, okay? I hope that God does something about that. But the ones that I see sometimes are salt-of-the-earth people who just make mistakes. They, they fail because, you know why? They're human, that's why. And they don't get it that the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. They don't understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of us, Romans chapter 6, verse 20, or Romans 3, 23. They don't get that. They, they understand their own sin and think, God must hate me. God looks at you and he says, no. Not only do I not hate you, but I accept you. You're mine. I love you. That doesn't give us permission to be rebellious. I can turn my back on Christ and walk away. But he doesn't let go of us that easily, guys. That's who we are. That's who God made us to be. And it's a powerful and amazing thing. We are in Christ. And every blessing that God has to pour out on mankind, he's poured out on us, and he keeps doing it. He keeps doing it because we're his people and because he's our God. I want you to go with me to chapter 3. I, I'm going to skip over to chapter 3 for just a minute. Chapter 3, and look at verses 8 through 12 with me. This is where it really gets deep. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Oh, man. I'm trying to grasp this God. I'm trying to get this guy. And, and I'm not up to it. The secret things really do belong to God, but even some of the things that aren't so secret are beyond me. And I'd like, to, I'd like to understand them better. I'd like to know them better. You remember James saying, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and does not upbraid and it will be given him. That's a promise like he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Pray for some wisdom here. I pray for wisdom when I look at these passages trying to figure out what they mean. And to give you kind of a a background of what I want to talk about with this. 
we tend to see society, our society in America, from a very individualistic perspective. We see all virtue in society, it resides in individuals, and then individuals get together, and so what we have in society is just a big collection of individuals. And what we have come to recognize in America as our nation and our attitude has affected us in the way we look at Christianity. We tend to see Christians as people who have been saved so that they can save the world. We have spent a lot of time thinking about how are you going to save people. But we haven't spent nearly enough time thinking about what we're saving people into. Our attitude tends to be that God is going to change individuals and through individuals he is going to change the world. But there are three steps in this process and we have often skipped number two, one of the most important parts of it. God is changing people. And he is changing them into a people. And through that people, he's changing the world. That's God's idea. It's not mine. That's where God started from. He's been transforming people into a nation, into a people, into a family. And it's through that nation and family and people and spiritual house that he's changing the world. It's the way that he's doing it. We tend not to see it that way because we like to think about individualism and we like to think about this in terms of me and mine, but it's bigger than you and me. What God is doing and what he has been doing is bigger than you and me. Maybe let me say this in a different way. We see the plot line of the Bible as God made us, we messed up, and he is rescuing us. That that's the plot of the Bible. That is not the plot of the Bible. I want to tell you that redemption is not the plot of the Bible. Yes, we are redeemed. We have been rescued because we we're enslaved to sin and he paid a price and he got us out of that, but that's not what the Bible is about. And it's not what we're about. And if I can get it, if I can understand this, it'll make all the difference in the world and in the way that uh, you see God and in the way that you see who we are. Do you really believe, because God knows everything, okay? Remember, God knows everything. He knows what has been, he knows what is, and he knows what is to come. Do you really think that God made people just so he could save them? Do you really think that's what God was up to? Because if that's what God is up to, it's like a little boy playing with his army toys and he's got this group over here and he attacks them and then he saves this group because he just likes doing it. God's not playing kids games here. God didn't make us just so he could save us. He made us for something else. He made us for something that he decided way before, way before he made the world. He decided, and Ephesians tells you what that is. Ephesians tells you what God is up to. God had a purpose for mankind before and in spite of the fact that man had sinned. And that is his predetermined idea about why we're here. And redemption is only a part. There is a purpose in this plot line of Scripture that isn't really about us. It's primarily about God. It's about what God wants, what God 
is working through history to do and what God will ultimately have. There is a predetermined purpose for God, and the Bible sometimes calls it predestination. It's not Calvinism. It's entirely different. Something that God has always wanted and something that he is getting right now and will always make sure that he has, and he will not lose it at all. What is it? Well, let me just skip over some things and tell you. When you look at the book of Ephesians, it tells you that there are four things that God decided before he made the world that he would have. And no matter what we do, God will have these things. There is a purpose for God that is just for God. You and I are a part of it, and we're the beneficiary of it. But it's God's purposes, and God's plan, and God's desire. And he has this great desire. What is it? Well, if you look at Ephesians, look at chapter 1, and I, I will just tell you, you get to the end of chapter 1, and God has always wanted a body. Look at chapter 2, toward the end of chapter 2, and God has always wanted a family, the household of God. He's always wanted a house to live in. And so it tells you that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And when you get to chapter 5, you're going to find out he's wanted a bride. And so you read Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21 and going on down to the end of that chapter, where he talks about husbands and wives, and he says, this mystery is great, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. God has always wanted a body and a bride and a house and a family. And before he ever said anything about creating the world, that was his determined purpose. That's what God is about. What do you call that body, that bride, that house, and that family? It's the church. It is the church. God has always been about it. I have to tell you that in our society today, we tend to think church is okay if it's a good one. It's not so important if it doesn't meet your needs. That there are a lot of things that are important in life, but that's certainly not one of them, but that misses the point of what God says is important. The church is the most important thing to God that exists. There is nothing that's happening tonight. And you think about all the things that are happening in our world. There's an impeachment process if it ever gets started. There is, a, there is possible war in the Middle East again. There are terrorist attacks. There are shootings in churches of Christ. There are other things that are happening. We think these are very important. There are famines in Africa. And while God is concerned about every single one of those things, the number one thing he's concerned about is his church. It is what God sent his son for. It is what he intends for us to be. We are the embodiment of the wisdom of God on earth. I want you to think about all that that means. If you were, if you were thinking about, and I would ask you sometime to, to go into, and, I, and well, maybe, maybe let me say this one other way. What if man had never sinned? What if man had never sinned? Adam and Eve never ate that fruit. None of their descendants ever sinned in a single way. All of them had lived perfectly. What would be God's purpose then? The same purpose that it is now. A body, a bride, a house, and a family. He's always wanted it, and he'll have it. Regardless of whether we sin. Redemption 
is a parenthesis in the big picture of God, and it had to take a place because otherwise you and I would not be able to have what God wants. You and I would not be able to have what God has decided that he will have. And so he redeems us. He redeems us because he has a bigger purpose than just us. He has something bigger than any one of us, and he always has. If you could go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and read Genesis chapter 1 and 2 very carefully, where sin has never entered the world yet. And read between the lines as you're reading that to figure out what is God saying he's interested in. And then you go to Revelation chapter 20 and 21, or maybe 21 and 22 may be better, the last two chapters of Revelation. And look at the themes there, where sin has no longer existing. We're past the time of sin. And look at the themes there. And you're going to find out that the themes in Genesis 1 and 2 and the themes in the last two chapters of Revelation are basically the same. They're basically the same. What God has wanted before, he's accomplishing. He's still been doing it all this time. And if you could take those themes then and trace them out through the rest of the Bible, it might take you a little while to do it. In fact, it might take you a long time to do it. What do you think you would find? Let me give you just a few passages and see if you find a theme here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 38. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, verse 27. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You were a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that he may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Somebody says, well, this is all really interesting, and theologians probably would care about this. But what difference does it make to me? I struggle with temptation. I struggle to make the house payment. What difference does it make to me when I'm trying to raise kids and my brain is turning to oatmeal because I'm running a taxi service and don't have enough time to think much? What difference does this make to me when I'm juggling busy schedules? What difference does this make to the average guy on the street? What difference would this make at all? Well, let me tell you this. In short, it means everything. Everything. Because it tells you why you're here. It tells you what you're supposed to be doing while you're here. God has manifested his manifold wisdom by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus. I want you to think about what that means. When we are the church, when we are the bride and the body and the house and the family of God, when the church is being the church, when it is what God has ordained it and planned for it to be, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, it is shouting out through the universe, God is wise. When he talks about principalities and powers, he's talking about angels. There are good angels and there are bad angels. There are heavenly angels and there are demonic angels. Who's he talking about? He's talking about them all. The angels desire to look into what God is up to. And you and I are the beneficiaries of what he's up to. And as long as we are the church, being the church, worshiping, evangelizing, being benevolent, as long as we are the church, bringing glory to God on earth, as long as we stand unified in the body, as long as we remember who we are, that it's about something bigger than us, then the angels both in heaven and in hell are going to say, God knows what he's about, and he's wise. But brethren, I've got to tell you something. When we begin to think that church is about me, that you have to sing the songs I like, you have to do the stuff I like, I give my money, and so you have to do the things that I want. As long as I think this is about me, as long as I think that this is about what makes me happy, and that's what this is about, I am prostituting what the church is about. Whenever we try to be popular, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be people that are attractive, but whenever we decide, you know, we're just not bringing in enough people this way, we've got to change the way we do worship. We're not bringing enough people this way, we've got to change the way that we look at theology. We've got to change the way, because after all, we're losing members. Whenever we prostitute the church of Jesus Christ, the angels in heaven and in hell begin to look at us and think that God's purposes are failing. And those in hell will say, God was not wise at all. You are, by your very existence, the manifestation of the wisdom of God on earth. That is who you are. There's nothing that I can think of that's more important than that right now. It's important that you and I understand what that means. That we are the body of Christ. The house of God. The bride of Christ. The building that is made up of living stones that are a holy temple to the Lord. A dwelling place for God in the Spirit. But that's who we are. If I lose sight of that, then I forget and I begin to think that life is about me. God's purposes are so much better than mine. The world doesn't understand that. If you may ask the average person on the street, what are the 50 most important things that the world is facing right now? I can almost promise you that the church doesn't make that list. Everything else will make that list, but the church won't make that list. But when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew chapter 16. What does Jesus say? Upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus said, because I'm the Son of God, I'm building the church. That's what he was doing, and that's what he's doing in the 21st century right now, building his church. And when the church is the church, the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. I was talking to Ben tonight. I'm glad he's the, he's the evangelism minister of this congregation. I love what he's doing. I love his plan. I've asked him to give me a copy of the plan that he has for how to influence the people that are around you because I think it's a good and powerful plan. It seems to me that for too long we have sat in a building and seen this as our primary work. We worship God here. We visit with one another here. But if we're really not careful, we look out at the world and we see the world is a really dangerous and bad place. This is safe in here, and the world is a dangerous place out there. So we need to stay forted up with each other. And inside, it seems to me that 21st century Christians far too often have become people who are afraid of the world. Become people who are afraid of what the world might do to them. Oh Lord, help me get through high school and not lose my religion. Help me get through college and not lose my virginity. Help me get through my work day and, and, and help those heathens there not to be able to take me away from you. We're, we're praying the wrong stuff. I love it in the New Testament when the church was surrounded by people who wanted to destroy them. When, when the apostles had been persecuted and beaten for the cause of Christ, they met with the church. And the church began to pray. And this is over in Acts chapter 4. The church begins to pray. You know what happened there? The church didn't say, Lord, Lord, please let them quit hurting us. Please protect us from them. They didn't do that. They said, Lord, make us more bold. Make us more bold to go out and do what needs to be done. And the house was shaken, and they went out and preached the word boldly. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. You know what that means? You know who's really scared of the church when the church is the church? Hades and Satan himself. And they're standing behind those gates, scared. And the church beats those gates down. The gates of Hades are not attacking us. We're attacking them. It's about time for Christians to quit being afraid of who they are. And being afraid of who the world is. And to say, we are in all things more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are not victims here. We are conquerors. And it's time, brethren, it is time for Satan to be afraid of you. It is time for him to begin to cower. And it is time for us to stand up and remember who we are. The world, it belongs to you, not him. It belongs to you. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, all are yours. And you were Christ's, 
and Christ is God's. God made us to be something amazing. And we are. We are. When the angels look at us, they're astounded. They've been looking for generations into us and they didn't understand what God was up to. And God finally pointed here and he said, that's what I'm up to. When you get into the second chapter of Ephesians, remember, you as he made alive when you were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the, of the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once lived, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved and raised us up with him and made us to sit with him in the heavenly places. Remember, he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about here. We're sitting with him right here. Made us to sit with him in the heavenly places that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want you to think about that down through verse 7. Here's what he's saying. He's saying one of these days... When the judgment day comes and all of us are gathered together in front of the great judgment throne, in that day where God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or bad, He will, as Jesus said long ago, separate the sheep from the goats. And you know what He's going to do for the rest of the world? You know what He's going to do? He's going to point to you. And He's going to say, these are my people. These are my people. When they were in this world, they shone like lights. When they were in this world, they changed things because they're my people. And they're the people I'm going to bless. I'm going to bless them for all eternity. I'm going to bless them. They're my people. What God did for us, what He has done for us, is astounding beyond words. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of it. And we have the even greater privilege of bringing people into it. If you don't know how God planned on you and chose you even before he ever made Adam, you're missing it. If you think this is just about you and your likes and dislikes, you're missing it. There's a purpose so big. If you'll lose yourself in that purpose, you'll find yourself. If you're trying to hoard your life to yourself, you'll lose it, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 16. The more we grasp our lives and try to protect ourselves, the more we lose what we have. The more we give ourselves away to the greater purpose that God has in this world, the more we figure out who we are. I'm asking you to be that person who figures out who you are. Little boy climbed up in his mama's lap and he put his arms around her neck. And he said, Mama, I love you. I love you so much I'd do almost anything for you. And the mama said, almost? He said, yeah, there's one thing I won't do. She said, what's that? And he said, I'll never stop loving you. I want to tell you that God holds us in his arms. And he says, I love you. I love you so much that I thought about you before you were ever born. I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you. I love you so much I'd do almost anything for you. 
And we say, what wouldn't you do? And he says, I won't stop loving you, ever. I, I, wanna, I want you to know that if you go out and you spoil your life, if you go out and you waste your life, if you don't invest it in me or, or in the good of mankind, if you just live it just for yourself, I'm still going to love you. If you go out on Saturday night and you party and get drunk and you show up on Sunday morning like your dead body, I'm still going to love you. But I can't save you unless you love me back. I'm asking you to love him back. I'm asking you to love what he wants you to be. Love him back. And if you hadn't been doing that, this is a great moment to start. Maybe some of you are here tonight and you've never been baptized for the remission of sins. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Okay, don't grab your songbook yet. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. There are a lot of preachers I know who say that's not true. There's a lot of theologians I know who say that's not true. There are a lot of psychiatrists I know who think that makes no sense. What I'd like for you to do is to put all the preachers in the world and all the psychiatrists and all the theologians over on this side and Jesus Christ on this side and ask yourself, who are you going to believe? I'll just believe Jesus. If you've not been baptized for the remission of sins, Jesus said you need to do it. I would ask you to do that tonight. There's a big purpose for you. You're missing it until you get there. And if you are a child of God, but somehow or another, life has gotten kind of mundane. I, I show up at worship services and think, well, it's just another worship service. Just another night. We're here because we do this every year, and, and so we're just doing it again. If that's what it's about, I need to change my whole view of what this is. There's nothing more important to God than what's going on right now in His people, in this place, right now. Nothing more important. I need to change the way I see my life. I need to change the way I see my God. And I really need to change the way I see the church. I just need to change. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James said that in James chapter 5, verse 16. Maybe you need prayer to get your vision right. To open your eyes to where you need to be. Maybe you need to be baptized. I don't know. What I do know is this that we are sitting right now with him in the heavenly places. That means that God is right here. Right here, right now. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. He's here right now. And when I ask you to come, I'm not asking you to come down here and confess anything to me or even to the elders or to somebody else. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor under heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. It's his invitation. He's the one who wants you to come. I don't want you to miss this. Why don't you come now while we stand and sing? Would you be free from the In the
risen and bright. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's side. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is lesson and we certainly uh, appreciate all those who are visiting with us and uh, invite you back to be with us again at uh, seven o'clock tomorrow we'll have our second lesson and I uh, certainly encourage everybody to be back we'll um, sing number 111 111 come we that love the Lord and uh, follow this song we'll be dismissed in prayer <laughs>